Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. My name is Mark Ellis, and I'll just be honest with you. I'm always up front. We're down a co-host. Jacqueline Coley, my esteemed, the real star of the show, is unavailable today. It's getting into the thick of award season. And Jacqueline not only covers the award shows for Rotten Tomatoes, she also goes to all the screenings. She goes to all the after parties, but I want to stress this to y'all. She's not doing the after parties like I would do the after parties where I just make friends with a bartender and talk about whether the Lakers can last for 82 games. She's actually hobnobbing. She's getting information. She's getting to see who has the inside track to win all these great awards. So Jacqueline is hard at work. And so I'm going to be steering the ship, but I am not alone today as we talk about the Star Wars Show. Yeah, we've done the movies here, a bunch of them. We've done some sequels, some prequels. We know the classic trilogy lives atop Mount Olympus forevermore. But now, I don't know if y'all heard this, Star Wars does TV, streaming, and The Mandalorian Season 1 and 2, pretty darn fresh. The Mandalorian Season 1 is currently at 93% certified fresh. And get this, Season 2, it one-upped its older brother by one percentage point, 94% certified fresh for season two right now on the tomato meter. And to celebrate the Mandalorian or possibly to have some hot takes, we have not one, but two guests joining us today. They're both from the hit show Force Center. There's a lot of podcasts about stores out there. I've chimed in on a few of them in my day, but Force Center has just built such a great fan base, and it is one of the most popular Star Wars shows in the galaxy. We've had Joseph Scrimshaw on, and he talked about the Phantom Menace, and now we welcome in the two other hosts of Force Center. First up is the one, the only actor, performer, host, contributor to StarWars.com, as well as her Force Center endeavors. It is Jen Landa. Jen, hello, and welcome to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat all things Star Wars. Mandalorian specific. Mandalorian specific for sure, but we can go into any corner of the galaxy you feel like. And I have a feeling that might be the case because we're also bringing in your cohort from Force Center. He is also the man who literally wrote the book, or at least a book on Star Wars, why we love Star Wars. And he is also a very funny comedian that you can catch performing alongside me in Washington, D.C., December 16th through the 19th. Tickets at MarkEllis.Live. But Ken Knapsack, I did not bring you on just to plug the shows. No, look, I've been saying Mark Ellis is wrong my whole life, so I'm happy to be here. And I, I know I look like I just took a break from driving cabs with Danny DeVito and Andy Kaufman, but happy to be here with you, both, all of you here today. I, I did love you in uh, in the early 80s. Hit show Taxi 
which I caught on Nick at night years later. So yeah, we are talking about the Mandalorian and we have two Star Wars experts here joining us. So I'm just going to put the question, Ken, I'm going to kick off with you and then we're going to go to Jen. Is Rotten Tomatoes wrong about the Mandalorian seasons? Again, 93 and 94% certified fresh. No, I I think Rotten Tomatoes is right. And specifically that low 90s range. I love leaving a little room for discussion, a little room for your personal (laughs) interpretations. A good solid A minus is a passing grade. And I I think it's right. It's a passing grade. It's uh, way above my standard, even though somehow I stumbled into Wake Forest University. Jen, I used to have a teacher that said, she didn't give any hundred percents to any student, regardless if they ace the test, because there's always room for improvement. So the highest score you could get is 99%. How do you feel about the 93 and 94% for seasons one and two of The Mandalorian? Is Rotten Tomatoes right or wrong? I would say mostly right. I might go a little bit higher. I do have a bone to pick with a score of one specific episode, but overall, Ooh. I think Rotten Tomatoes got it just right. Ooh, you came to play. This is going to be fun. <laughs> this is going to get good. I guess it's my job because Jack was not here to give you a synopsis of the Mandalorian. So you got this cute Muppet baby, right? Well, actually, let's step back further and take a look at this bounty hunter that is within this cult, religion, whatever you want to call it, of the Mandalorian. And so they wear their armor proudly, they wear their helmets, and they never take their helmets off ever, ever, ever. Nobody ever sees them without that helmet. And this whole storyline takes place about five years after Return of the Jedi, which we all know is the greatest film in the history of Star Wars, or any movie for that matter. And so Luke, Leia, and Han, they're off doing their own thing. And this is following the exploits of one particular bounty hunter that we come to know as the Mandalorian, who has all these adventures, sometimes misadventures. But one particular mission has him intrigued in a way that he didn't know he could get, and emotionally attached in a way he didn't know he could get, because this mission is to bring this child to the Empire. And it's a baby version of Yoda. It's not Yoda. It's just a baby Yoda of the same race that we find out is named Grogu. And so through the adventures of the Mandalorian in seasons one and two, we meet a lot of zany characters, a whole host of favorites and fan debate. And we end up, well, I guess I could spoil the ending of season two for you because my brother and I watched it at the same time. We saw an X-Wing fly in and who comes to rescue the child that the bounty hunter has been painstakingly taking care of like I take care of Molly the Wonder Dog for two seasons? None other than Luke freaking Skywalker himself. And more importantly, the spunkiest droid in the galaxy, R2-D2, the one who saved everybody multiple times, shows up. They take Grogu off, and now we await what's going to happen in the next chapters of The Mandalorian. I thought that was a pretty good job of keeping it quick, keeping it short. Producing Lucy, was that okay with you? I get the thumbs up from Lucy. So here's the other conundrum we're in right now. Not only are we down to Jacqueline Coley, but Lucy, currently, she totally blamed this on her husband, by the way, full disclosure, does not have internet at her new uh, palatial estate mansion. And so she rushed off to a local coffee shop where she is currently monitoring us. So I got the thumbs up that we're doing okay. Lucy, do you have any thoughts that you want to weigh in on The Mandalorian real quick? Yes. Okay, so really quick. When I was five years old, they re-released the Star Wars original films in theaters. So that was the first time I'd ever gone to a movie in theater. And also that I saw the Star Wars movies and the feeling that I had, I've never been able to receive that feeling again watching any film, minus maybe like Lord of the Rings. When The Mandalorian came out, season one gave me that feeling again. I've wanted all the Star Wars films 
previously to give me that feeling, but I never got it. So I was a little disappointed, but it's almost like dopamine, just like filling my whole body, but better than dopamine. And literally season one brought that magic again. So I actually think season one is better than season two, just because that magic was reunited and I loved it. All right, a little bit of a Caliente take from Producing Lucy as well. We are going to talk about which season we think is better, so there is going to be some dividing line. It's not just going to be a Star Wars love fest. We can talk about which season we think should be higher rated on the tomato meter, some bones to pick, and the things that we love the most about The Mandalorian. So you're going to hear a lot more from Jen, Ken, and myself. And as for me, I think Rotten Tomatoes is pretty dead on with its ratings of 93 and 94%. I could see it getting a little lower, but I want to keep it in the 90s if for no other reason, just because, again, this thing has done what so many people have doubted could ever be done, and that is unite the current fan base known as Star Wars, mostly into one loving mass. So with that, we now turn it over to Tim Ryan, our review creation manager here at Rotten Tomatoes, for our segment that tells us what the critics were saying when The Mandalorian was released and the episodes therein. It's Two Minutes with Tim time. Two Minutes with Tim. It's pretty safe to say that there's a firm consensus around The Mandalorian. Everybody loves Baby Yoda, everybody loves Werner Herzog, and critics and audiences are in almost perfect harmony about the show's overall quality. The series as a whole is at 93%. That number takes into account reviews for the seasons as well as the individual numbers. And there are many more reviews for individual episodes. On a season level, The Mandalorian Season 1 is certified fresh at 93% on the tomato meter with 36 reviews, and it has a 92% audience score. On a season level, The Mandalorian Season 2 is certified fresh at 94% on the tomato meter with 27 reviews, and it has a 90% audience score. Almost every episode has a tomato meter in the 80s or 90s, though the worst reviewed episode is Season 1, Episode 5, The Gunslinger, which is at 73%. So what did the critics have to say? In a fresh review for the first season, Marianne Johansson of Flick Philosopher wrote, Here is the future of Star Wars, not one mired in the narrow threads of the movie's mythology, but a story that acknowledges that there is a whole big, complicated, wonderful galaxy to explore. In a fresh review from season two, Rohan Nahar of the Hindustan Times wrote, It's Star Wars in its purest form, spare but sprawling, elegantly intimate yet epic in scope, appointment TV at its best. So that's The Mandalorian. Jacqueline, Mark, can I offer you a libation to celebrate the closing of our shared narrative? Back to you, folks. <laughs> well, thank you, Tim. I imagine Jacqueline might be at some super exclusive VIP event where she's enjoying a libation. Currently, for me, it's just the ice water with lemon because it's not noon yet. So let's get into TV talk. Let's just transition. Brian, do we have different music for TV talk or is it just this? kind of like a certain uh, NFL broadcasting network that just uses their same music for baseball as well. Now it's time to talk about all things Mandalorian. Uh, Jen, I want to start with you, and I'm going to ask you, I'm just going to throw a, a fastball right down the middle here. Where does the Mandalorian, as a collective unit, so seasons one and two, where does that rank for you in all of Star Wars entertainment options? So where does it, like, do you, do you have it somewhere on the ladder of your favorite movies? Where would it rank for you? For me personally, it would rank right up there with the original trilogy. I'm going to say it. I Partially because of the nostalgia factor and what that represented that first season when we all got to see 
Grogu, Baby Yoda for the first time. And like you talked about, Mark, how it united the fan base. It was so special. And it reminded me of when I was a kid enjoying Star Wars. So it ranks pretty darn high. Although I do love the sequel trilogy as well. So, Yeah, I mean, I, I love them all. And Ken, you and I have had many conversations about this. But I remember seeing the first, I think, two episodes of The Mandalorian because you showed them to me when we were in a hotel room in Washington, D.C. Again, those tickets, markellis.live. I won't mention our upcoming show every time I bring you up into the show. But you knew the reveal already that there was going to be this baby Yoda character. And then you got to watch me and our dear friend Christian Rubalcaba watch that for the first time. That must have been fun for you. Absolutely fun. Absolutely fun to watch that kind of do what Jen just talked about there. Uh, uh, get people to, you know, obviously a lot of feelings around a lot of Star Wars. Always has been, huh? Uh, there's still people grumpy about Empire Strikes Back. Uh, let's be honest. Uh, so to to ha see, to have it do what it what it, what Jen just said it did, it, it did unite because an overload of cuteness, but also more importantly, a big bundle of purpose with that character. Yeah, the, the, the purpose, the, there's substance behind the style with who we came to know as Grogu. So, Ken, where does the Mandalorian as a whole rank for you in Star Wars canon? Well, I'm always going to cheat with an answer. There's no bad Star Wars for me, but uh, this, this it's pretty high. And I'm someone who who takes something from all trilogies, as as, uh, as you know, Mark. We've had many discussions in the bars uh, about this uh, around the world. Uh, I, uh, I I put Mandalorian really high up there, uh, especially season one. But I love a lot of things in season two. Can't wait to talk about, it, especially all the characters that roll up there. Uh, but I I do put it up there, uh, and that actually happened on more of a repeat viewing for me. Initially, season one didn't grab. Me as much as it did other folks. But then uh, by the end of it, yeah, I was on board. Okay, see, I had the same experience with season two where initially it wasn't grabbing me as much as season one did. So I am still wrestling and I can be molded one way or the other by you and Jen here. So Ken, I'm going to piggyback it right over to you. Why is season one of The Mandalorian better than season two? There's no bad Star Wars. Why is season one superior? Uh, season two did what it needed to do and what I wanted it to do, which is start to expand the story, expand the universe, bring in some wonderful characters, Bo-Katan and Fennec Shan kind of returning, uh, Ahsoka, all those things. It, it, it made the story bigger. And some people maybe, you know, that can rub them wrong way if it's, ah, it's too much. But those characters are, are there to serve the story, right, that we need in season two. But season one, I, I, I'm going to probably say this a lot. I apologize. It is a collection of beautiful Star Wars tone poems. And it is this really this the, the whole theme of season one is about uh, growth, personal change, uh, adaptions and uh, reprogramming yourself. Uh, and, and also it's a big thing about parenting, too. I'm not a parent. Jen can speak to that better than I can. Um, but I think the themes in season one are so powerful. And, you know, when themes in Star Wars start popping out of the screen, that's when I get excited, Mark. And in the shadow of a now fallen empire where we're still trying to figure out, okay, well, we did the thing, the Ewoks won, but now how do we pick up the pieces of this broken galaxy and put them all back together? Jen, are you on Team Ken and Producey Lucy? Do you think season one's better than season two or are you more of a season two supporter? Initially, my thoughts were I loved season one. Um, I thought that doing what they did, making Star Wars so fun. And like you're saying, Ken, it, they were so many beautiful episodes visually, emotionally. But with season two, I keep coming back to it. And I felt the same way as you did, Mark. Initially, I was like, I, I don't know how I feel about season two. It didn't quite grab me the way that I had hoped. So I went back and I rewatched it. There are some great, fun, 
moments. It kind of felt like they just were letting loose all the creators. They've already done it. You know, the directors, the writers, they'd already done it in season one. For season two, they knew where they needed to go. You had characters like Boba Fett, who I've never been a Boba Fett fan. I love him now. (laughs) What happened? How did they do that? They brought these legacy characters and they made, I mean, that's a huge... That's a huge accomplishment to take such recognizable, beloved characters and make us love them even more on screen. Yeah, let's unpack some of this Boba Fett stuff, too, because Boba Fett getting his own book and don't worry, kids, you don't have to read it. You can just watch it. Um, But we'll talk about our anticipation for that a little later. But as far as the character of Boba Fett, Jen... I was sort of always on the same page as you where, look, the the coolest look in the galaxy, okay, gets invited to every Met Gala, but you didn't see a lot of him. And thus, I didn't really see a whole lot of purpose. I didn't understand other than just the mystery of who this character is, why Boba Fett was people's favorite Star Wars character. I will say it was cool to see that reveal at the end of the first episode of season two, where you're like, oh my God, he got out of the Sarlacc pit. It's been confirmed. But I was never the biggest Boba Fett fan either. But season two seems to have changed that tone for you. Absolutely. I mean, we got to know Boba Fett in the Clone Wars, obviously. And but for me, as an original trilogy fan, it was kind of almost like a joke. You know, he was just this cool, mysterious character that all the fans loved. And yeah, he has somehow escaped from the Sarlacc pit. Ha ha. Yeah, right. So (laughs) his performance in season two, though, it brought the depth. It we saw the pain that he's gone through and the life that he has lived. And he is bad ass. But there is something going on internally. He's not just this, you know, this warrior. He's got some depth to him. And that made me really excited to see where they're going to take the character next. Well, it's interesting, Ken, because if we're talking specific favorite episodes, my favorite episode from season two would be one of the ones that does showcase Boba Fett and this new role of sort of like Liam Neeson in Taken that he's, you know, I, okay, I got a special set of skills and I guess I'm going to have to use them again. I'm not in the best of shape, but the armor still fits barely. Let's put it on and let's go do some fighting. The Robert Rodriguez episode that he directed from season two is one of my all time favorites now, because I think it's called the tragedy. I believe it's chapter 14. And we just get to see our guy Boba Fett back in action. Where do you stand on season two and maybe what would be your favorite episode from there? Would it be the tragedy? Would it be the following Boba Fett even more so than Mando or Grogu? It is, uh, it, that's up there. Number one, because we I've hiked up there, right? Off the 118 freeway in Simi Valley. So now I can go out there and pretend to be Boba Fett. Uh, I like the uh, the one with uh, the big Bill, Mur- Bill Burr monologue there uh, later, a little bit later on that a lot of people love. But I do love this episode. And it's interesting because uh, all three of us talking here are, are, you know, let's be honest, we're original trilogy era, uh, which means that was our entry point to Star Wars. And, and we all kind of share that same feeling of like, Boba Fett, great design, one of the all-time classic designs. But I didn't, I didn't gravitate towards him uh, much growing up. But I, what they, what I think they've succeeded on that episode is, is, is Jen touched upon it. Is, is a little bit of the identity, right? He's a clone, but not a clone. His father was uh, not a Mandalorian, but was a Mandalorian by creed. I'm the greatest bounty hunter of the galaxy, but is that who I am? Now that I survived this, and that episode confirms uh, his uh, lust for violence, revenge. Uh, a, a kid who watched his father killed by a Jedi, uh, and then, but. Where does he want to take that? And and I was surprised and and pleasantly surprised by what they were able to do with that episode while also still maintaining that 
Boba Fett coolness. And for me, middle-aged Boba Fett now, still hitting the gym, but still struggling to maintain with the nice cloak and, and the armor you used to have back in high school. Loved that look. <laughs> Love that feel for Boba Fett. Dad bod Boba Fett is is what we'll call him. So so if you have, you harbor all of this, um, you know, th these nice nostalgic sentiments, getting to see Boba Fett actually live up to the promise that so many fans had since we first met him at a job interview in The Empire Strikes Back. I still would hired Bosk for the mission, but that's just my personal take. What is it about season one? And maybe what's the episode for Ken Knapsack that says, boom, right there. That's why season one is superior. Well, you kind of mentioned, mentioned I was traveling to Washington, D.C. to feature for this uh, comic guy that, uh, da, 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 da. he's got jokes, he's got jokes. Uh, and I got stranded in, a, in the airport in Phoenix for 10 hours. And that episode dropped like 6 a.m. that day. And I watched it on my phone first, right? And then eventually in a hotel room in D.C., um, I didn't know what to expect from Mandalorian. Uh, I, 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 I'm someone who doesn't want my Star Wars dark and gritty too much. I don't, I don't want my Star Wars to be just power fantasies. And, and, and episode one wasn't that. But, uh, you know, a lot of the hype, a lot of the feeling was finally we get a dude that's just going to start killing people in Star Wars. And I, was, I found myself resistant to that. So that episode two pops up. And it is, like I said before, I'll say it hopefully the last time, it is this beautiful tone poem and reflection on who you are, who you were, how can you find your personal identity? Everything with Quill is about uh, how do you how do you break down and rebuild who you are? And Mandalorian, who is this uh, guy that comes from a certain culture, certain, certain upbringing, who solves things with violence, who sol solve things by powering through to get his way, cannot do that. He cannot use those skills and things he knows to solve the problem here. He has to look at it in a new way. And I was like, oh, my God. Plus, it was funny. Offworld Jawas saying suga, suga. And, and, and learning that the Jawas have a, a, a patio on the top of the sand crawler <laughs> for, for sunbathing. Loved everything about that episode after I kind of reflected on it. And that kind of set the tone for me going forward with, the, with season one. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Well, I'm, I'm so happy that uh, the, the other guest on this show is not Christopher Nolan, because if he heard that you watched that on your phone to kick off, I mean, it, he probably would have left the interview. Luckily, Jen is a lot more tolerant. Jen, I, I so subscribe to really both what, what you and, and Ken have echoed. When I, when I saw The Mandalorian for the very first time, that first episode of season one, I felt all of those nostalgic tones that also Lucy was talking about where it was the same feeling I had to be honest when The Force Awakens came on and maybe even a trailer for Force Awakens where it felt like this lived in world, you know, and, and it even you, you felt the desperation of just a township like you got to see shades of in Rogue One. And that was what drew me into it, that we're going to be telling these quiet, more Western 
style stories. And from John Favreau's, you know, own lips to God's ears, that's what he was trying to do is make this Western samurai in the spirit of what George Lucas had intended for the original Star Wars. So when you think back to your season one viewing experience, hopefully it was a little less travel oriented and chaotic than what Ken went through. What's the season one tome, so to speak, that, that really does it for you that you say, that's why I love this show? I love it because it plays on two levels. If you're a casual fan, if you don't know a lot about Star Wars, you can still enjoy it, right? It's just great to watch. You can get immersed in the story. But for fans that are more hardcore and want to dig deeper, you can do that too. You can learn, read about the books. You can go back to old canon. It's all connected. And part of that, I think, is from the collaboration between John Favreau and Dave Filoni. You have the fun kind of childlike um, play, playfulness that John Favreau is bringing to this of just being like this fan who's wanted to tell these stories since he was a kid. And you have Dave Filoni, who's also a wonderful storyteller, but who's bringing that uh, knowledge from George and all of the canon and all of that rich backstory from these characters and you put them together. And that's what I think makes it so, such a likable show across all fans. I mean, so much of Star Wars is so divisive, but everyone can find something within the Mandalorian that they can get behind, whether it's Baby Yoda or Cobb Vanth or whoever, right? There's creatures, there's lots of aliens, different uh, species, uh, you know, crazy monsters. These are the things that Star Wars fans love and have been waiting for. Let's keep our Star Wars weird. And I think that it just, it does that so well. Yeah, and the other thing that it did, kicking off that the entire show, was that it never felt desperate for your attention. You know, like it never felt the need to throw that this way. Hey, guys, Star Wars is back. Look at all these characters that, that you remember. It really took its time and pacing with that. So it wasn't until episode three, I want to say, the, the Deborah Chow-directed episode where we got to see the Mandalorian really show his action chops and really show, like, this is what I can... If you paint me into a corner, I am a cat that's going to strike and strike with vengeance. It was thrilling to watch. I think Chow did such a great job piloting that episode and the way that the action was shot towards the end. I think it's called The Sin is uh, is chapter three of The Mandalorian. And that was the one that locked me in. I was like, okay, I'm here for the ride. I'm here for the different adventures. These are all kind of work like mini serials in a way. Um, any other episodes from either one of you, starting with you, Ken, that you feel like really highlight what you enjoy about The Mandalorian? I, I will go back to uh, chapter 15, which is The Believer. This is, uh, and, and no coincidence for me that Rick Famiglia directed both these ones. Uh, I want him to tell more Star Wars stories and direct more Star Wars stories. Uh, and this is uh, this is the Bill Burr episode, right? Uh, you know, every, Mark, you should do a joke about Boston accents in space. <laughs> it would work really well for you. Um, and what I love about it is it's this commentary on belief, commentary on, on choice. And, and Star Wars is very much at its core about light versus dark, but it's really that's hope versus fear. And uh, going towards the light because the light is there, and, and the choices that lead you to that. And, and this Bill Burr character, who we first met, who's who's a you know recovered uh, imperial uh, sharpshooter, who's in the underworld, who kind of doesn't care. He's above it all, and he finds a reason to believe and finds a reason to back a cause. That's a pretty powerful statement from Star Wars. Uh, and and I just absolutely everything about that inglorious bastard style uh, dinner scene there or, or break room scene is uh, some of the best Star Wars I think. Uh, that's been in a, a few years and, and, and a lot of people reacted to that because of that. See boys, everybody thinks they want freedom. But what they really want is order. And when they realize that, 
They're gonna welcome us back with open arms. Huh. To the Empire. And they also reacted to his Boston accent, as you said, for whatever reason. It was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Jen, <laughs> if you think about the the episode that sort of it gives us the culmination of where we are now, um, because you love season two so much. And you think about that final, I believe Dave Filoni directed it where, you know, again, we, we got this child. We, we, we realized that maybe it's Grogu has outgrown our ability to take care of said creature. And then an X-Wing shows up. And I'm, I'll tell the story now. I was watching it. My brother and I had sort of synced our schedules. He's up in Seattle. And we were watching it at the same exact time. And we we had the timestamp. And so as soon as that X-Wing pulls in, he's the smart one in the family, apparently, because I was just the dummy who thought it was one of the pilots that we had met earlier in the season flying an X-Wing. And I'm like, oh, cool. We get to see, you know, the Honda Civic of Outer Space one more time that I know from the movies. And then my brother text me and he's like, it's Luke. And I'm like, what? Oh, it could be. Luke. And then obviously we see Luke Skywalker and R2-D2 showing up. Just such a great way to close a season, but also really whet our appetites for what's next. It's It was a risk, right? There's a lot yeah. of weight to bringing Luke Skywalker back. And the first time I watched it, I was not, I was so focused on like the technology and oh, how is, you know, the de-aging process and whatever. So I was taken out a little bit. But when I went back and I watched it again, that was when I, I really understood the weight and the magnitude of it. And I will have to say, I did kind of compare it to Darth Vader's uh, entrance in Rogue One a little bit, right? It's almost yeah. like a mirror image of that, um, the, the light side version, if you will. But yeah, it was, it's just, that's what I love about the show is they're like, we're going to show you Luke Skywalker. And, and fans, our minds just constantly are getting blown. Oh my gosh, Boba Fett. So yeah, that was, that was very exciting to watch. It's a very interesting point you bring up because it was a big risk, but it's almost like we didn't notice what the risk was in retrospect because it's like watching Simone Biles do a gymnastic stunt where, of course, she's going to stick the landing. But if that's me up there, it's not going to end well. And so you you have to, you you. there's so much care that gets put into it. And then it was, Ken, it wasn't until months later that I found out that, oh, that was actually, part of that was Mark Hamill just being de-aged. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm just here for the stories, I guess, because I don't know what's real, what's fake anymore. But that was a pretty good way to end a season. Uh, it was a really good way to end the season. And 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 I, I too, the first night I had that, like, is that his head? Wait, what's, what am I, what am I watching? <laughs> and, and, and sometimes Star Wars takes these big leaps with technology and that's going to be some of the, there might be a false step here and there, but I think overall, like you said, it, it's the feeling in the moment and it, and it was the right time for that character to show up. I love Jen pointing out the mirror image. That's the point of it. You got one hallway scene, which is where all the power and rage in the world won't get you what you want. And the other is this peace and purpose and knowledge and defense and answering a call of help will, will lead you to what you need. And, and that, that was really powerful to me. And it was Luke and, you know, come on, you and I, Jen, we all three had that Kenner action figure in the eighties and we'd look at that and want, want to see that stuff. And, and it served that purpose as well. Star Wars has that balance between the deep and the important and the purposeful and, oh my God, did you see that? And that, that really kind of wrapped it all up there. Yeah. I believe the text I sent to my brother was, uh, I'm not believing it until I see the green lightsaber and then right on cue, boom. And the friends that we are in real life, Jen and Ken both know how much that green lightsaber means to me. So we all love Luke. We all love R2-D2, our friends from the original trilogy. But Ken, let's kick it off with you here. If you, you can highlight the Mandalorian if you want. So you can pick another character. 
Um, who is that character in The Mandalorian that really grabbed you? Or maybe a character that you say, ah, maybe we, we, we could have gone a different way with this. Uh, for me, I love Quill. As you can tell uh, by those who can see me, my grizzly old grumpy beard like I love grizzled weirdos in Star Wars and it's something uh, Jed and I have discussed at length with Joseph Scribshaw on Force Center we love the grizzled old weirdos Peli Moto's kind of the, a grizzled old weirdo in her own way and seeing Amy in Sedaris in Star Wars was fun for an old sketch comedy fan like myself but Quill <laughs> uh, absolutely just what he represented the the, the punch to the heart of uh, of, of his passing um, uh, and, and I love everything with him and I just was watching uh, the episode 2 The Child again before we got on the air and I just just love that character I love what they did with that character and the purpose behind it and uh and you know I have spoken but that, that was the early hit of that was the eat my shorts man of the quotable Mandalorian I think it's been forgotten now by other quotes but I have spoken it's, it's still one of the best <laughs> I'd say you also have some sort of a a, a grief cargo vibe about you um, overall, though, I wouldn't necessarily tap you to direct a Star Wars Mandalorian episode not in season three anyway Ken no offense I mean, can we just celebrate Carl Weathers in Star Wars? I mean, wow. Yeah, and 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 now he and and he directs some great episodes too. So Jen, it, it could be grief, it could be Mando, it could be somebody else we haven't thought about yet. Your favorite character in the Mandalorian is who and why? I mean, come on, it's got to be Grogu. There and it is. Not not just because he's freaking adorable, but because they got it so right of what having a toddler is like. It just is like, he's grabbing the little ball, gonna put it in his mouth. No, no, I, and it, it's just such, a, just really for me, it's like the first time seeing um, that parental relationship in Star Wars in a very real way, in a very sweet way. Um, and it's, he's just, that puppet, can you imagine being on set with that puppet? I just, I, I wouldn't be able to contain myself, um, but just, all, everything, the magic behind him and also, you know, the puppeteering and the story, it all comes together to create this really beautiful character that has rightfully captured the hearts of fans old and young, like my two-year-old, who is obsessed with him. So... <laughs> Yeah. And it was fun to watch uh, to watch producer Lucy just nod in agreement when you said it's like the actual experience of trying to raise a toddler. I, as Ken and I, uh, can somewhat relate to where we just try to keep the wrong piece of chocolate out of our dog's mouths. But I mean, I think about you talk about the risk with bringing Luke Skywalker into the fold. It was a monumental risk to have a bait because that. What, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Does the entire show fail if we don't buy into Baby Yoda? Because it was introduced, and and just because of the modern world in which we live. And my first thought when I saw Baby Yoda in that DC uh, hotel is, I can't believe this wasn't spoiled months before the show came out. I cannot believe that somehow they were able to keep this creature under wraps from all of us rabid Star Wars fans who will screenshot overhead pictures of a set and try to zoom in. We, we did not know this was going to happen. And even better yet, it it got over the bar. It, it can, in wrestling terms, Baby Yoda got over with us. How big of a, of a clutch play was that for Baby Yoda to work right out of the, right out of the gate? 
First of all, I love when I subconsciously make you use pro wrestling terms. It's a big victory for me in that industry. Uh, but look, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the fact that, you know, you got people getting jobs and camping out in parking structures next to some of the sets just to get photos for their websites, how this was kept relatively secret. There was only a little bit of rumblings right before the show came out. And even then it was like, what are you talking about? That the, the, that just showed that everyone on that crew, everyone involved in that show believed in this. And it was a giant risk. Not unlike that risk when in the late 70s, George said, we're going to do another one. And I'm going to take the most pop popular movie in history. And I'm going to uh, make the sequel work or fail based on a puppet and a murky pool. And that worked. <laughs> That's part of Star Wars tradition. That's part of what George established. And I think Grogu absolutely just slid right into that role so perfectly. Uh, and again, yeah, you're right. That that second episode, if, if you don't believe that he is staring at an injured Mando and wants to heal him and can climb out of his pod, if you don't believe any of that, it, it, it might have fallen flat. It, it, it absolutely might have fallen flat. It might have worked like an episode of Muppet Babies for you and I. I don't know. Well, Muppet Babies, Star Wars, as we know, is the greatest 22 minutes of anything ever. There's never going to be a Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong episode about Star Wars Muppet Babies because nobody could possibly, including any critic ever, give that anything less than 110%. And now, even as I'm talking about this, again, as the listeners and the viewers of our program know, I can be molded into different opinions. I don't want to be one of these staunch people that just sits on a throne and says, this is how I feel and no conversation is going to change me because now that we start talking about some of the characters, season two is winning me over again, damn it, because I'm thinking about all of the great representation that we got with folks like, like Ming-Na Wen's Fennec was so great to see her in action. And then you also got a, another one of those just fans clamoring for for decades about seeing this character in a different way where we got Rosario Dawson playing Ahsoka Tano. So th there's just a whole lot going on and matriculating season two. Jed, I think that's why I love that season so much is that those characters prove that we're not just resting on the laurels of season one with a cool looking bounty hunter and an adorable child. Absolutely. I mean, Ming-Na Wen, what can she not do? When I watched that episode with her and, and Boba Fett and she's, you know, jumping and she's a total mercenary. She's a deadly assassin. She's very cool. She's very calm and just she's fantastic and so exciting to watch. Seeing Katie Sackhoff as Bo-Katan live action, I was so thankful that they were able to bring her on screen. I mean, she's a phenomenal actress, Valstar Galactica. So being able to see her her character come to life was really thrilling. Um, and yes, Ahsoka Tano, that was, that was a challenge for me because I, I love Ashley Eckstein. Mm -hmm. But I thought Rosario Dawson did a fantastic job um, and Dave Filoni directed that episode and it just it just felt so made me feel warm and cozy just kind of seeing all of Star Wars come together like that, knowing that the, Ahsoka was such a beloved character for him um, and bringing her story to life was really was really exciting to watch. Yeah, Ken, you want to piggyback off that, just being a lifelong Star Wars fan that you, like Jen, are, where we know Ashley Eckstein is the voice of Ahsoka Tana. We also know her much lesser-known husband happens to be a World Series hero. But if you take your anticipation for an Ahsoka reveal, did you smell it coming? Had you read something? Or was that maybe as big of a surprise as seeing Grogu for the first time? I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt in my conspiracy-based mind here that they intentionally let some of the casting leaks out so they could hide Luke Skywalker at the end is kind of one of the thoughts I have. Like, cool, you hear Ooh. some crumbs? Cool, we got this over here. Um, I oh, okay. I ended up re yeah, I ended up really loving it. Ahsoka Tano, when I was part of that generation that was like, 
what's this little like sarcastic snippy little yeah and to like she's like a top five character for me uh and and love everything she brings to the table as a character so it was a big challenge it's a big challenge jen's not wrong at all there's a lot of a lot of fans of sokotano who have taken such great inspiration from that character but more specifically taken inspiration from the way ashley exine has represented that character both in and out of the recording booth so it was a challenge but i think i trust uh, dave filoni in that regard he's very protective of sokotano the character he stands out Side with a shotgun and pitchfork saying no one's coming near this character but me <laughs> and, he, it, it, and again it's easy to look at season 2 and say it's a roll call of other characters and things we know and I, there's, I know that, I know that the old member berries thing and that's not the case in season 2 every character that shows up serves its purpose for the story of Mandalorian and his growth, Din Djarin's growth and includes Bo-Katan but at the same time they start to, you're starting to get beyond their story. Bo-Katan struggling for power that she maybe once had had before, lost, and power that Din Djarin doesn't want, wants to give away, but he can't. Uh, Fennec Shan, and now her connection to Boba Fett. And can we also just celebrate that book Boba Fett will be st starring and led by two wonderful actors in their late 50s? Yes, I love seeing that kind of stuff as more gravy shows up in my beard. Um, so yeah, season two did succeed in that regard. And, and at the end of the day, they won me over with Ahsoka. I like Jad was a little dubious. Look, dubious a little dubious yeah it, it's, it's so let's talk about some of the maybe the risks that didn't pay off or, or some things that you just weren't as high on as most of the rest in the mandalorian before i do give a shout out one more time to Werner herzog in front of the camera the great director as the client one of my favorite just it, it, things that he's even in star wars but just the character that he plays where again the empire has fallen but we still got to play multiple sides here anyway it's it, he's the reason why i will continue to go back and do an entire rewatch of particularly season one of The Mandalorian, regardless of how long we get. And we are going to talk about what we think and prognosticate for the future of The Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett and all these other, hopefully, great Star Wars TV endeavors we get. But before we get there, Jen, what, what is it about Mandalorian that maybe didn't rub you the right way? Was there something that you said, oh, well, we, we, miss, we misfired with that. We could have done this better. I'll tell you what, I really wanted to see more of Pedro Pascal's face. I know that the Mandalorian cannot take off his helmet. I know that that's part of the story. But when you hire this phenomenal actor who is such so great with the looks that he gives, I mean, Game of Thrones, right? Like, uh, how could mm, I have a hard time with that? So I'm glad that we got to see his face in that Bill Burr episode, which was which was wonderful. But I, I want to see more of it. Let the man act. Uh, with his face. <laughs> and it's not a bad face to look at. So you're a Star Wars expert, Jen. It, they can take it off to like bathe and stuff, right? But but just nobody can see it. I just imagine like taking a moist towelette and just shoving it under the helmet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are, are you just taking KFC wet naps and just like kind of cranking it up there? Ken, you wear helmets. How do you, how do you bathe? How do you not get ridiculous acne from wearing a helmet like that all the time. It's it's hot, it's gamey. Yeah, look, as someone who has a beanie on in my 90 degree studio, yeah, you got to you got to you got to dab, you got to dab. I look, it's a great, it's a great thing. And a lot of it might have been the, the, the season 1 stuff about how maybe the availability page. I'm not I'm not even going to go into rumors, but shout out to to uh, Brendan Wayne and Latif Crowder who who were in that suit for most of season 1 and 2 there doing great stuff. But Pedro's such a good actor. Everything in his voice, everything about it that that, that episode Jen, you're so right when he takes his his helmet off and and the acting. I hope we see more of that there. But again, there's a challenge coming to him. He he has learned through Bo-Katan that he was kind of raised by an extreme cultist, the armorer. 
It's like it's like Shyamalan's The Village, where they're from. They're like, no, don't go outside unless you need medicine. You can't take your mask off. Bo-Katan's like, oh yeah, no, that's not the case. He's got that. That they're gonna have to pick that up, and I, and I hope they do. Okay, that's very very interesting way to to leave off this conversation. I, I will say, Pedro Pascal what he brought even with his brief screen time with his actual face. I'll tell you when I wanted him to take his helmet off. I don't know about y'all. One of the most intense love, albeit quick relationships in season one. I wanted him to get it on. The offer was there. They were both ready to go. He was this close to ripping his helmet off and just having some fun for once in your bounty hunter existence. I wanted to see it happen. It would have been too early in retrospect, but I wanted to see it happen. Am I so bad for saying that? No, I thought it was going to happen. I was like, she's either going to kiss his helmet, like caress it and really go for it, or he's just going to take it off. And I thought, this is the moment. I think I went <gasps> like that. I gasped. And then I went, oh, <laughs> nothing happened. Yeah, it, it, so. was, it was that tantric experience, Ken. And, you know, he, he's like the sting of bounty hunters. It, and it just keeps you waiting for hours and hours. Any bones to pick with Mandalorian for you before we uh, close up shop on this segment? I'm so I you know I know Jen very well as a Star Wars pundit and fan. I'm surprised she didn't answer that we haven't yet gone back to Endor and seen Ewoks in Mandalorian. I, you know I, I definitely want to oh, see that. I'm getting there. I'm, yeah, I'm getting, getting there. there. Uh, for me, it's interesting. It's interesting. <laughs> I, I I love it, and I'm so you know often get accused of being too positive Star Wars only because I'm finding what's in there for me to love and to inspire me. I continue to do that. Uh, Mandalorian challenged me a few times with even the great risks of tech that they took. I, I'm obsessed with the volume, both in the, its potential, but also how it doesn't look cinematic to, to me sometimes. And sometimes in season one, I had to work through this, like, man, I just would rather go, uh, you know, the Aki Aki Festival, the Ancestors and Rise of Skywalker is one of my favorite sequences because it's just so big and it's so it's all around me. And I feel the joy that Ray feels in that scene. I want to live in that moment. And and here we are, we're, we're in a soundstage down in Manhattan Beach and I can kind of tell sometimes that's personal for me to get over. And as the, as the tech got better and the show pulled me in more, I wasn't worried about that. And then I learned that they, they fooled me completely. I thought Werner Herzog's client had an actual working office. It was literally a desk in the <laughs> middle of the volume. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm maybe I'm worried too much about this technology. So that some of the not acting casting choices, but some of the the choices that uh, the actors were maybe uh, you know part of making of in terms of dialogue and everything. It's the way some of them were delivered. Some of the scenes weren't my favorite uh, in terms of just performances, but. That's also a Star Wars tradition as well. Ask George Lucas. He'll say, oh, you noticed that I intentionally made the prequels to sound a little clunky and, st and stiff because that's the style of the time. And that's what I wanted to put in there, whether you liked it or not. I thought Mandalorian touched on that a little bit. And that uh, doesn't always uh, connect with me right away. Yeah, okay. I think some of those Lucas quotes could be revisionist history. But, you know, it, it, back in the day, it was the fashion to wear an onion on your belt. And we don't do that anymore. Which was the style so at the time. My only complaint, I guess my biggest gripe about Mandalorian, and this is more the nostalgic nerd in me, I love Star Wars because of the bombasticness of the music, and the music in Mandalorian is is very well crafted, but I'm just waiting for that, like, I'm waiting for that hit, you know? It's like, I feel like I'm I'm sitting through a concert that, like, Journey's doing, and I'm like, all right, you guys can do some of the new stuff, I'm gonna go get a beer. When do we get to any way you want it? When do we get to faithfully? When do we get to all these hits that I know and love? Is that a me problem, Jen? I mean, you could just say these notes, right? Like that's like already iconic, right? So I think I think Ludwig Göransson's doing a. I mean, I like it, 
because I think it, it, there's moments where it's kind of like got this dubstep techno sound to it and we're seeing blurgs and and there's fighting and it just is so weird but I like the weird and it, there's kind of almost like that disconnect which I think is something new and fresh for Star Wars we love John Williams of course but and probably is, much needed yeah and, and yeah. Can we do need to 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 go to new horizons whether it's with characters or with the music and so I can accept this is something that I'm just going to learn how to cope with no, look, I, Lua Gordonson is an absolute genius. I'd love to. Can we do Rotten Tomatoes music talk? Talk about his producing work on the first Hiam album, some of my famous rock fa- favorite rock producing ever. Uh, I wow. love his stuff, and I love uh, I love that it's unique and it's instantly recognizable. But I do understand what you're saying, Mark. And this isn't against Mandalorian, Lua Gordonson, or anyone. It's just we're used to sitting in a theater, and then John Williams reaches out, grabs you, slaps you across the face with a fish, and says, "You got the biggest thing in the galaxy coming at you," and and, and some. Sometimes with Mando, it's different. It's a different tone. And I hope with some even the other Star Wars shows we're going to get, I hope we sometimes just have that boom at Star Wars. But I will say this about Ludwig. Like, I, I, I'm, I appreciate the risk more than I would the comfort food of just going back to what we already know. And, and that, that's just more me. But there is never going to be anything within the world of Star Wars that compares to, as Ken so eloquently put it, John Williams punching everybody in a movie theater in the face with the it was it was Williams and a Lucas one too because Williams got you with the crossover and then immediately after that done Lucas gets you with the uppercut of the most gigantic spaceship you've ever seen in your life just coming right over your head and that's sort of what we're going to talk about as we transition with our own music Uh, Ludwig if you would Okay, I got to come clean. That was not actually Ludwig and Gorenson doing that, but um, maybe, maybe someday we'll patch things up. So let's talk about the the TV versus movies of this, which everybody loves having this debate now. And I can take my Star Wars in any form. I'm still a purist when it comes to the way that I enjoy seeing these particular stories. And it is in a movie theater. It's, it's in film form. And I think that a lot of that debate, Jen, centers around how maybe you felt about the sequel trilogy whether you felt like this was still the right format to tell these new stories and introduce all of these new characters or if it was a little limiting. So you have a lot of folks that say the Mandalorian really set the template for how Star Wars should be going forward. How does this debate land on your shoulders? I don't think it's it's fair because, you know, television... The Mandalorian, there's just so much more room to play. You have different directors. They can go to different parts of the galaxy. They can have a little bit more fun with the storylines. I think with the movies, there's just so much more weight to it. There's just so so many more expectations of where fans expect these characters to go, what stories they're expecting. They come up with these, you know, theories, myself included, about who Rey is. And then, you know, what we get... (laughs) the theory doesn't come true or whatever it may be. And and people get really emotional about that. But I feel like for the TV shows, there's just a little bit more um, f- fun to it, if you will. And just like, it's it, there's just more room to play, basically. Biggest difference for me, Ken, when I think about the Star Wars films versus the, the TV show, particularly The Mandalorian, is that I feel like The Mandalorian has an easier out with ending its tales than Star Wars would. I mean, you obviously see... Uh, whether you want to think it was a sloppy handoff between J.J. Abrams to Ryan Johnson and back to J.J., whether it was all premeditated, which I don't think it was, um, but I still think they pulled it off well. With Mandalorian, it was a great end of a season to see Luke Skywalker and R2-D2 take the child, but 
is that how you could have ended a movie of The Mandalorian? Or would we be like, no, you can't end on a cliffhanger. TV shows are supposed to end on cliffhangers. They're supposed to be teasing us because we know we get them hopefully later this year. Movies tend to need to wrap things up in a tighter bow. And I think that that's a challenge. Yeah, so you're talking about the end of Mando season two, which Favreau said, I just kind of stumbled on in the writing process and didn't plan at all. Yes, you're right. Um, yes, um, here's the thing. Yeah, this is this is a big conversation. Yeah, again, we're talking about sitting in a theater now. I, I like going to movies less and less because the grumpy beard, but I love going for Star Wars stuff. In fact, I remember watching The Last Jedi next to you, Mark, and we grabbed each other's knees in excitement when that movie yeah, we started. Did. Yeah, um, we did. It was a moment. It was, it was a, a moment. moment. It was a moment. So I love that. But we Star Wars is also about change and growth and letting go. That's the way of the Jedi. And I'm uh, Clone Wars, George Lucas, That's what, his heart was in that. I Weekly television where I can take time to go in and kind of guide these wild adventures and do these character studies. That worked, and I think this is the future. I'm so excited for Kenobi. I'm more excited for Andor. I cannot wait to dive into that world anymore. I'm really excited with Leslie Headland's The Acolyte, and we barely even know what's going to come with that. I'm excited for this era. I'm excited to watch Star Wars at home. But the example I'll give is, uh, call this controversial, uh, solo Star Wars story on Ken Tomatoes, certified fresh 100%, because I love that movie. And I love that movie as this fun, serial adventure, wild origin story that's also a, a look at oppression in the galaxy and the destruction of the foot of the empire coming down on the people and what it meant and what it mean, meant to find hope in that fear. It's such a good story. It's such a fun story. But it also didn't have the stakes of the galaxy. And you can't deny that. And that's why I think a lot of people, the end of it, would like, no Death Star blew up. If that had been a Disney Plus series, I don't think you would have had those kind of complaints. So I have to be. I have to be, even maybe against my old uh, Star Wars nature, I have to be open to these kind of stories, both big and small on, on the small screen. Yeah, I'll still say it's just, it's a much bigger risk and endeavor, and it costs more dollars to, to make a feature film than it would be an episode of a TV show. As Ken alluded to a little bit, Jen, because like I, I, I like Solo Star Wars Story a lot, and I definitely ate at Denny's more that month than I had previously. And then I think about The Mandalorian, and, and even people who say, oh, this is the way to do Star Wars is these serial episode, episodic adventures. You get a break there because it's like a new issue of a comic book you love. If this Wednesday you read the new issue and it's a dud, oh, don't worry, there's another one coming out next Wednesday. Whereas if we see a movie and anything bugs us about it, if we say, oh, I didn't like that one scene in The Last Jedi, or oh, I, I didn't like that he threw the lightsaber away, whatever it was, we have to sit with that for so long that it sort of creeps into our feeling about the overall product. Whereas with Mandalorian or any of these other shows, there's always the next train coming around. Absolutely. I think it also speaks to how we kind of digest content nowadays, right? Like, you know, people put out YouTube videos every week or podcasts every week, and you may not like an episode, but you still love that podcast or that TV show or whatever it may be. And next week, you might love it. Like, for me, one of my favorite episodes from The Mandalorian is The Prisoner uh, with Bill Burr and uh, was directed by Rick Famuyiwa. And it's just kind of it doesn't, it's just like a heist, like a heist episode, right? With all these weird characters coming together. And it doesn't really have many stakes, so to speak. Uh, but it's just great to watch visually. And it's just cool to see these characters and have this like familial relationship between the Twi'leks. Um, so, but not everyone I see on here, 83% Rotten Tomatoes. I believe it should be 92% at least. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just think that there's just, there's just more more things to consume and more things that you may love as opposed to dislike. 
Mil, more Bill Burr as a bounty hunter in outer space is what I like. Our our dear friend Bill Burr. Um, exactly. So it's it's too big of a question that I'm going to leave you all with here today. If we were going to get into who should be the caretakers of Star Wars going forward, because I like this collective unit that is started with Favreau and Dave Filoni and and Kathleen Kennedy doing a lot of producing work with the films and just making it more of a, a Pixar style collective of ideas as opposed to just one figurehead. I think it's too much on any one person, but. If I just ask you all, what is that streaming show in the world of Star Wars that's coming out? And I'm going to do the, I love doing this on my show Versus on Peacock is, okay, I'm going to give you a TV and you can only watch one of these new Star Wars shows coming up. Are you taking Mandalorian season three? Are you going to go book a Boba Fett? Are you going to go the Cassie and Andor show? Are you going to go the Obi-Wan show? Is there another show I'm missing? Start with you, Ken. Which show is Ken putting on, well, for you, probably your phone in a Phoenix airport? Yeah, are we going to get stranded again on the way to a comedy show? It's, it, um, it's, it's becoming a trend. It's a trend. <laughs> wow, this is, the, ah, that's tough. And yeah, Acolyte, Ahsoka, tough. Kenobi, I've been waiting for the Kenobi thing for a long time. It was going to be a great movie. Now it's going to be a better show. I'm going I'm to go, I'm going to go with my heart. I'm going to go with Andor. Uh, I, Diego Luna right. is Cassian Andor. Uh, there's so much there, again, because my favorite era is the 19 years between Revenge of the Sith and New Hope. I'm obsessed with that era. I'm obsessed about the, re the rebellion against the Empire, hope versus fear, light versus dark, and, and, and the Force emerges in other ways in these stories. I, I'm so obsessed with these little details of Andor as a character who grew up as a separatist. His family is a separatist. That's why he doesn't like or trust the Jedi, like or trust the Force, who has to do all these horrible things in the name of good. In the end of Rogue One, he's like, I just want all those horrible things I did to mean something and have purpose. Mm -hmm. That's where he ends up. Now we get to go experience that. And it's a, maybe a spy thriller in Star Wars. Yeah, uh, I'm going to watch that one. He shot his friend in the back. That's not going to happen to Ken and I until our fourth trip to D.C. Uh, Jen, Ken took Cassian Andrew. You can take that as well, but you only have one TV. What are you putting on it? Uh, the book of Boba Fett. Absolutely. Because, like I said, I did not care for Boba Fett. In fact, I was vehemently saying... I don't want to see any Boba Fett movie or any Boba Fett show. <laughs> and now I'm like, I can't wait for this. This is all I want. Um, and the trailer was a little bit more subdued than I thought it would be, which I appreciate because we all know that Robert Rodriguez can go action packed. Right. So yep. I, I just I'm excited because I'm also hopeful that we might see Ewoks. Somebody's got to bring them back. I don't know who it's going to be, but whoever it is, God bless you. <laughs> We, we kind of treat them like the Ghostbusters after the first movie. Like, they saved the city, and then now they're just doing kids' birthday parties. No, these are the Ewoks. These are legends. They should have statues in every city where the rebellion, where the alliance, where the good side of the force is celebrated. So we got to vote for the Book of Boba Fett. We got to vote for Cassian Andor. I am so excited for the Obi-Wan show. I am apprehensive a little bit about how much they're leaning on Darth Vader, if that's going to be just more of the nostalgic tones or if it's actually going to be doing service to the story. But then if it serves the story too much, then it makes that fight that we see them have in A New Hope a little less impactful for me anyway. But again, that's just me and all the baggage from 40 plus years of watching Star Wars that I bring to the table. So I'm just going to go Mandalorian season three. That's what I want. Give me more adventures in here. Give me more of my friends popping up. Give me more new characters to enjoy. Give me more of these serialized Western shows like I'm watching High Noon again. That's what I want. Mando season three. Three different takes from Star Wars fans. And look at that. We didn't come to blows. At least we, we almost came to blows a couple of times. But we resolved our differences here on the show. 
And that is what it's all about. We usually do our mailbag right about now. You can email us anytime. RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com. No email today. So let's just go right to the big finish. Brian, do you just want to hit some music just, just to wake everybody up? So in lieu of an email, I will just plug Ken Knapsack shows in D.C., which he's letting me pop in on December 16th through the 19th. You can get tickets at MarkEllis.live. Very excited about going back to the D.C. Comedy Loft. Thank you both so much for blessing us with your force center knowledge, your prowess. Joseph Grimshaw would have loved to have been here, but he was busy taking a sunset photo of a martini, which if you don't follow Joseph Grimshaw on Instagram, some of the it's like a binary sunset looking at that guy take pictures of alcoholic drinks at the perfect time of day. Jen Landa, you made a sterling debut on this show. I would love to have you back talking movies outside of the Star Wars universe. You're always welcome in our little cantina. Where can everybody out there find you and celebrate all the good that you're doing in and out of the world of Star Wars? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at Jennifer Landa. 1138 on TikTok, but normally just at Jennifer Landa, just me. And also starwars.com where I share my thoughts on Salacious B. Crumb. (laughs) (laughs) one of another one of the great characters from Return of the Jedi. Well, your your partner in crime, there's someone who did spend some time after a misdemeanor felony in cell block 1138, Ken Knapsack. Uh, Where can all the kids find you when you're not slinging the yucks or working down at the docks? Yeah, yeah, working down the ducks, getting more jokes for those uh, yuck shows. Yeah, uh, just go to KenNapsack.com to find all the things I do. Uh, you know, I have a Game of Thrones podcast. We have the wonderful Four Center podcast on which Jennifer, for years, convinced me to have a new appreciation for the Ewoks. My love of the Ewoks uh, comes from Jennifer's passion for the Ewoks, so all credit to her. Uh, and then uh, I got a new thing. Uh, I got a book, of course, Why We Love Star Wars. Uh, that's available. Got a new show, a radio show called Pop Rock and Radio. Real proud of that. Talking music, you know, a little Rolling Stones every now and then, Mark. So look for uh, Pop Rock and Radio on Mixcloud. Ken and I had a very good time at the Rolling Stones show. Uh, that is going to do it for us today. Once again, you can email us anytime with your thoughts. What TV shows, what movies do you want us to talk about on upcoming episodes of Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong? RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com. Wherever you enjoy listening to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else, whatever that platform encourages you to do, I echo that sentiment. Rate, review, all that good stuff. Because next week, we have a very exciting episode because I get to go back into the world of sports and movies and the perfect intersection therein with the 1991 classic directed by Catherine Bigelow, Point Break, where our special guest is going to be none other than Good Morning Football's Kyle Brandt. I know he's excited to talk about Johnny Utah. Did Johnny Utah have a future in the NFL if he didn't hurt his knee in the second half of that Rose Bowl game? And then he ended up becoming an FBI agent slash bank robber for a brief time. And then he jumped out of some airplanes. Well, it's always jumping out of an airplane. But luckily, I had the parachute known as Jen Landa and Ken Knapsack here to safely guide me to the ground for this episode of The Mandalorian. Thank you so much, Producer Lucy, Brian Perez, our esteemed guests, Jen and Ken. For Jacqueline Coley, who's working much harder than I am right now, I am merely Mark Ellis at Mark Ellis Live, and we'll see you next week on Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. One. Two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.